I haven't heard anyone say the phrase Homestar Runner in a couple months. What's Homestar Runner? Hey, everybody. <laughs> it's September 30th, 2016. <laughs> this is David Paddock, host Eternal. Across from me in cyberspace, we have a twofer this week, which I think is the first time I've had two Skype guests coming in. We've got Andy and Ben. Andy first. Andy, how's it going? Hey, doing pretty good. I'm, uh, I'm a little sore, a little tired, but feeling good. Less sweaty now? Less sweaty now that I took a shower. It's Outstanding. It was a good idea. Ben. Yes. You have a very warm tone to your webcam. It's this, it's this um, 3500K incandescent lamp on my desk right now. Uh, of course you have an incandescent lamp on your desk. It might not be an incandescent. Oh, it's probably a 15, yeah, it's probably an old 15 watt bulb that just refuses to die. But it's soft. You got to have soft lighting at night. That's how it is. Like you can't have the, the none of that daylight garbage. <laughs> your commitment to living 50 years before your time is absolutely admirable. <laughs> <laughs> we sit here on computers. <laughs> and to Ben's right. In non-cyberspace, Lori Reeves, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm not sweaty either. Well, that's good, because I cranked the AC hey. down for this particular <laughs> event. Um, we haven't had you on the podcast before. You are Ben's mom. I am. Yeah. Uh, so you are, as far as I can tell, and this was a uh, this was a a privilege, let's call it, that I hadn't exercised until terribly recently. I forgot that all of my friends have parents, and I didn't move out of town. So I actually have, like, this convenient bunch of people who have done things I have not done that have entertaining things to say about those things and possibly can be advocates for avenues of life that I essentially don't pursue, whether or not that's anyone's fault, I don't know. But it seems like, and Andy can attest to this as well, and we will in a minute, that you you two some extent, are our section librarian. <laughs> Probably. I would like to be a librarian in my alternate life your 50 years ago. I mean, your house speaks to when it. When there were no computers and somebody needed to talk to a real human to find something meaningful to read. I mean, I've, I've had to do that anyway. I couldn't find a fiction book to read, yeah. uh, which, is what, which is what we're here for. We're here to discuss the Farseer trilogy, specifically the first book because it's the one that I read. We'll get into that <laughs> sooner than later, but... Lori, you recommended a fantasy book to me, uh, which is something I haven't had recommended to me, let alone read, in probably a decade. Um, it wasn't uh, – the last time I read an actual fantasy book may have been Lord of the Rings. It may not have been. It may also have been a trashy Dungeons & Dragons quintology <laughs> that I read at some point. I tried to get you to read Dune at some point when we were living together. It didn't work. Yeah, that – I remember oh, that. that's heavy duty. That's, that's, that's science fiction-y – yeah, Honestly, Dune's a lot heavier the than it feels kind. to me now, apparently. Yeah. Mm. But anyway. Well, I just, I, as someone who can't enjoy the pulpiest of fiction, that um, yeah. that was right off yeah. the mat. I actually gave, I gave two false starts to Dune. Um, but that's, I don't know if that's necessarily getting off track, um, but it is sort of why we're here today, because I am thoroughly outnumbered by people who actually enjoy reading fiction around this table. I can read things that are considered unabashed classics most of the time. Um, I can do Catch-22, for example. It's one of my favorite books ever. But after that, not a whole lot comes to mind. 
Um, I guess the fastest way to get at this, Andy, what kind of books have you read in the last year? Um, let's see. There's a number of them. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, probably much more for science fiction than I am for fantasy. And most of the reason for that is because I'm more of an ideas person than I am like a uh, uh, story or a characters person. So, like, so we have one type of f- fiction that we can work with right now. We've got the ideas fiction. We've got the ideas yep. pull. Yep. So um, let's see. What have I read? I've been reading a lot of uh, an author called Ian Banks. Yeah, died, Ian actually. Banks is great. Rest, yeah. rest in peace. Um, very sad. He uh, so he wrote this cycle of novels uh, called The Culture, mm-hmm. and it's a a uh, future more or less utopia in which post scarcity uh, ultra post scarcity society in which um, in which ma- essentially ultra intelligent machines govern human society. Uh, and are more or less benevolent towards said humans, um, but there are still there are still in that society roles for humans to play uh, in the interaction of the culture with other, usually with other societies in the galaxy. Um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, let's see, theme wise, a lot of like economics, sort of a lot of. Uh, uh, how to put it exactly sort of transcendental ideology yeah so one of the books i one of the books i recently read involved uh a number of species in which they they actualized the hell of their of their religion oh yeah which one is that that's uh surface yeah that one's rough that one a lot of his stuff is pretty heavy a lot of his stuff is really difficult to like like horror yeah, yeah. It's just not read. it's not pleasant. Is it time. is it first or third person? Uh third person. All of it's third yeah, person. I guess it okay. Is. Um a little bit of distance, a little bit of detachment. A little bit, but you man. That the act- you kinda you kinda don't see it happening until it happens. The things that like the horrifying sorts of things that happen. And then when it does happen, it's like damn. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, no, the bo- <laughs> the, the books have the capacity. Like, there's, yeah, the one book. It's not. It's not surface detail. Use of weapons. Use of weapons. Use yeah, of weapons. it's got a, the chair. Yeah, the yeah. the main character has a, a a weird aversion to chairs, like, and it's 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 pronounced enough that for like the first three quarters of the book, you don't and you don't know anything about it. You just wonder you just, what the you, fuck is and with this guy's it was, version It was of to chairs. the point where about two thirds of the way through the book, I'm like, "Did they cover this already somewhere?" <laughs> <laughs> I like went back through and I was like, "What the hell's with these this guy's thing with chairs? Like, this is really weird." And then you find out why, and it's like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Um, ben, that makes sense, and I want to go into a corner and cry. Yeah, Ben, throw a book on this pyre. Uh, the Southern, I would, I would, the Southern Reach trilogy. No books have, uh, it's, 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 you can just buy it as one book. It's not like, uh, it's three books, but they're not that long. It's, it's, something happens in Florida. It's not, they never say Florida, but it's Florida. Always does. Um, where like a whole region of land has been modified in this sort of really 
weird, like they send expeditions in and really crazy, strange shit. It's it's bizarre and like not entirely uh, like like you never really you never get like a clear explanation for like oh this is what happened, but like uh, I they're the, the books are beautiful. Um, they're beautifully written. Uh, there's it's it's the one of the first books in a long time where I've noticed the writing and been um, really uh, impressed. Like, is it is it specifically the prose or the dialogue? Or uh, the prose, because there's many, most of the most the many of the most memorable scenes in my head have no dialogue to speak of. Um, it's just a masterwork of. Uh, compelling descriptive language um like it's not so it's not just exposition it's interesting um because the whole book the the ideas trying to be conveyed are like not conveyable so it's like um you get sort of this a shadow i guess um i don't know it's hard to describe but i would recommend the books they have a very creepy kind of uh ambience but they're really wonderful books to read. Like, I really enjoyed them the whole time. Um, even the middle, there's a middle book that drags a little bit, uh, as, as usual. Always is. Yeah, the middle book is always the slow one, but um, they were very good. Uh, other than that, uh, there was that dog book you loaned me, Mom, or gave me, uh, that called, I can't remember what it was called. It's sitting over there, but I can't quite read it from here. Um, about a soldier with PTSD who gets matched up with a, or a police officer with PTSD who gets matched up with a dog that has PTSD and they solve crime best together. Friends. Yeah, basically. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was it was just really uh, it was a really fun read. It was really enjoyable. That sounds rompy. Eh. No, not at all. Actually, it's fairly serious. Yeah. What? Yeah, the perspective is fairly serious from the damage. Like oh, the I guess, damage to I guess the, it is about PTSD. The damage That'd be to kind the of police a, yeah. officer and to the dog is right. very real on both sides. All right, fair enough. That would be kind of a dick move to make a <laughs> book about PTSD. Let's <laughs> rock through our PTSD. <laughs> yeah. Hey. So that's, that's ideas and prose as being two ways to pull this. Uh, Lori, do you have an example of a third book we might want to add to this? Um, Fourth now. Okay, so I also love science fiction. Okay. And it's my favorite type of book to read, even above fantasy. I love fantasy, and some fantasy novels are among my favorite all-time books in the whole whole world. But there are science fiction novels that I just find incredible. One of them is House of Sons by Alistair Reynolds. Um, have you read that, Andy? I haven't. I haven't read it, but I uh, I've read Alistair Reynolds before, and I've enjoyed his stuff very much. I need to. House of I read. Uh, what was it that I read? Uh, Revelations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one's good. good. To my very favorite book of his, though, is um, House of Sons. And it's about, uh, well, they're clone siblings, but there are like, there were thousands and thousands of them. And they are like genetically co- corrected. So it's supposed to be against the rules for them to carry on with each other. And there's a pair that does, <gasps> which sounds like a horrible premise for a story. But it's actually pretty spectacular. Yeah, I really need to read that one again. Yeah. And then I guess my other one would be, um, what was the other one I gave you besides Seven Eves, Ben? Oh, um, uh, Flight of, not Flight of the Silvers, was it? No. Uh, no. Something else. Uh, 
I don't remember. Another Neil Stevenson? No. Well, anyway, it was science fiction also. Hard science fiction. <laughs> I, so I really like a good hard science fiction novel. And I like the science to be believable, but I usually don't understand it all. <laughs> so they're probably pulling the wool over my eyes, and I really don't be, know. Uh, it has to sound believable. It has to be yeah, conceivable, exactly. you know? Yeah. Yep. Because if it... Kind of in, sorry, go ahead, Aiden. I was going to say kind of internally consistent, I think, is really the only thing that's necessary. Right. Yeah. Which if you come up with something that's essentially magic, and you talk about it for a little while, and it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. I feel like... Yeah. That's enough for I me. I feel like there's one more book that in the context of this discussion would be relevant, and that me and Andy and and mom can agree on being kind of the standard for fantasy and that's name of the wind like easily yeah easily. like that is the high mark um yep because it it's the it's, standard by which yeah it's the standard against i've measured all fantasy books since i've read it and many of the yep. books that i read before it um because yep. it com it, it's it's a combination of beautiful prose and a wonderful compelling story um and great characters and great characters it's it's kind of the it's got it it's all. It's the proto fantasy <laughs> novel almost. It's it's book crack. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. When you finish reading it, you just want more, and it's mm-hmm. almost compulsive. And he's the slowest writer on the planet, oh so he's gosh. still only written the second book and in the trilogy, and uh, no no sign of the third one yet. Some things take time, you know. Yes. So that that pulls in the third one, and to round on this, so we didn't read Name of the Wind. We read. Assassin's Apprentice. Correct. Lori, why do you recommend The Assassin's Apprentice to everybody, including me and Andy? Which we didn't actually, we did not know that we were both recommended this book by the same person. We were walking on an unnamed golf course. We probably shouldn't have been on one time at night. And we were just discussing books. And I was talking about blocks, reading books. And Andy brought up, you know, there's a series I keep meaning to get to that I had recommended to me. I was like, oh, which one is that? <laughs> and that's the reason we're talking on this podcast right to now. To clarify, every recommendation for a book that I've ever given to anyone has come from my mother first. Um, <laughs> so those of you who respect my taste, you know. Respect your mom? <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So why did I recommend... This particular book. Why um, do you? I do continue to. Yes, because I recommended it to you. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I recommend it is I. it's almost like an easy entree into the genre. Like if you're going to read a fantasy novel and you're not a big reader of fantasy, and in your case, you would made it clear that you don't read much fiction at all. Not a bit. Right. So this book, to me, it just sort of, it creates an environment that you sort of dwell in in your head you know and i that i wanted to talk about that too maybe sure. we can put that later in the podcast but like how people absorb the written word and i think people do it in different ways and some people have like they they feel like they're in it and that's how i feel like when i'm reading something in fiction if it's a good story the world around me disappears the book in my hand is invisible there isn't anything going on in my brain except the world and the story. Yep. And that was one of the reasons I recommended this particular book because I love character-driven books, books where the characters are developed really clearly and that there's a purpose to every character and that the characters feel real. 
And, you know, a lot of times in books, the characters are either so perfect that you just don't believe they such people actually exist in the real world ever, or they're so flawed that I can't identify with them. Because I feel like nobody is as stupid as some of the characters I read in novels, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You read about somebody that consistently makes terrible choices over and over and over again and never seems to learn from it. I can't handle that. So this or it's book, the opposite. Yeah, know? or the opposite. And they're, and they're like too great. Yeah. And they're always, the, you know, succeeding at everything they do. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah, it was funny. You you had mentioned that you you tried to watch Breaking Bad. Yeah. And couldn't make it through it for yeah. what sounds like a parallel reason because you just you you couldn't buy the main character. No, I couldn't. I did not believe his transition from the meek and mild-mannered chemistry teacher to the evil mastermind to whom nothing mattered except making more money um, in the end. So, and I know he had a purpose, but <laughs> I found it really hard to believe that somebody would make that much of a character shift in the amount of time he made it. Uh, by, by, by episode six, he was pretty bad. <laughs> Again, that, that I, I feel like to some degree that just speaks to the possible latent nobility in your heart. I know a lot of people <laughs> who would make that jump. You think in so? that amount of time? Um, Absolutely, I bought that immediately. That's that's I've... not the biggest problem with Breaking Bad, uh. <laughs> but that's that's certainly a subjective thing. Um, so the world of Assassin's Apprentice in the first book, and we're again only talking about the first book. But if we want to open it up more generally, by all means, I'm one of only four people around this virtual table. We're talking about a boy who. Um, rather almost begrudgingly has no name. And this is actually one of my favorite things in the book, because uh, it's always better to start with praise rather than criticism, <laughs> is the way that this, the way that uh, Robin Hobb addresses names in this book is economical in a very poetic way um, that I, I appreciate. It may be one of the better ideas the book has to offer, at least as far as I saw, was that the... All the princes, all the royalty, everybody who matters has a name that matters in some sense, either ironically or deliberately. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, I can totally see this having been accidental at first, where in order to remind herself how a character is supposed to behave, Robin had a placeholder name, like Shrewd right. for the king, yeah, mm -hmm. and just decided that it was a good idea to leave it in there. And I think it was, and that one of the one of the primary things that, at least I don't know if it continues into the second and third book, but in the first book, Fitz or Boy or New Boy or the protagonist has a dozen names, none of which are terribly fitting, other than of exactly who he is to the person in question. Um, is that a technique that just shows up in books that I'm not? I mean, maybe not quite as blatantly. Honestly, it seems it's been fairly unique to that series in my experience so here's the funny thing actually about this that i i found was that i saw this on the back of the first novel so it says young fitz is the bastard son of the noble prince chivalry and then blah 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 king shrewd something something and i was like oh god that's why you didn't this is that's be why andy didn't read those books for more than a year <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be one of those fantasy books where and I don't actually have an answer for exactly... Like, I, I can't put into words exactly what I was thinking when I, when I had that kind of impulse. But it, I have never seen it done anywhere else, but it seems 
like a generic thing. I, I Archduke exactly Meanie Pants <laughs> is gonna take yeah. over the kingdom. <laughs> to yeah. be to be fair, all of the names do have that. Oh, they, maybe they don't all quite have that level of nobility, but they at least don't label the enemies in this book. Mm-hmm. What of them? Well, there actually yes. is a, there's a clearer distinction than that, and that is that only royalty has those kinds of names, yeah, and right. then only so, in, nobility. Um, yeah, that what's the the kingdom's name? Buckkeep. Uh, the six duchies. Yeah. six duchies do they follow that tradition yeah. for loyalty? Because like. Princess right. Ketikin, that's just her name. Uh, yeah. Um, um, is it Ke- Ketrikin? Or Ketrikin? There's an yes, R in there. That's what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, and, and so I actually warmed up to it after a while when she explained it's like, oh, it's a tradition, and this is why they're, it's like a, a, you know, when children are born, they name them these things in order to kind of give them It's aspirational. Direction. Yeah. Yes, it's aspirational. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, and it's not. It's not unique to her book. She didn't invent this idea. Our own history in the United States, our culture was full of people named faith, hope, charity, uh, perseverance, and many other characteristics that people gave to their children in hopes that they would live up to the name. Gung-ho. I don't I think that met, ever happened. I didn't meet Gung Ho. Where it's, was Gung Ho? It's most actually. I guess is that is that the uh, is that the difference was that it was massively sexist in our case because that sounds like all ladies' names. No, to no, me. there were men's names too. I just don't remember them. But yes, the men. <laughs> there were many, many men's names that were characteristics as well. Um, and this was several hundred years ago, but some of those names persist now. Uh, you don't innocent meet many. Innocent, Dick. yeah, man, that was a man's name. Innocent. Yeah, I was trying to think of popes. Popes seemed like that'd be yeah. where it would show up. We had an answer. The, the reason I thought of it, we have an, Pious. We have an yep. ancestor named Innocent Butts. Um, yes. <laughs> in our family Naturally. tree. Yeah. <laughs> Doubly literal. Right. It's a yes. great name. I think I believe that's in your family tree. Yeah, that's the Watts side. Yep. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, there oh, were that, no. No innocent butts in my family ever. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I guess that is a good. Your butts are absolutely guilty. <laughs> they were all absolutely guilty, yes. Mm. I guess that is a good point. If we're talking strictly medieval, at least the last names pretty much always were overly literal in design. Right. So, so Robin, I've, I guess for all intents and purposes, she just stole a thing that we actually used to use constantly mm-hmm. so yeah yeah it's so just, uh, good on you robin for reading your well, history it kind of, books <laughs> you know it kind of evokes um it kind of evokes uh how to say it exactly historical uh feeling i guess because of that right we don't really do that with our names anymore our names are more or less just names cool yeah, sounds a, a designator yeah my this is my sound designator right andy yeah um even though andrew did mean something at some point. It really doesn't anymore. Uh, so it kind of evokes a, a medieval feel to it, I guess. Which which brings me to another question on my piece of paper, which is, why is fantasy almost always medieval? You know, if you think about fantasy mm-hmm. settings, the the most common, the, they don't have machines. There, there is certainly steampunk. There's There are variations on that now, but... They all seem to take us back to when women wore long, flowy gowns and men wore swords and armor. You know, what is it about the castles and the armor and the swords that we feel like to transport ourselves into a an imaginary alternate world, it needs to be medieval? 
This is a question that comes up a lot regarding a subject where fantasy shows up a lot that we've talked about is Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop games where you play out a role. And the closest I've come, yeah, the closest I've come to having an explanation for this, um, which is slightly ironic for reasons I'll get to slightly afterwards, is that there is a disconnect between now and then that makes a substantially wider range of both moral and personality types acceptable. Um, so that if you want to literally fantasize about something, it is detached from the real world. And generally speaking, I mean, not to massively over stereotype the Dungeons and Dragons community. I mean, how could I? Um, (laughs) it is an escapist thing. It is a world that is entirely dictated by rules even though there's random chance it's random chance that you can count on Uh, it is it is the world of the introverted and the farther you can get from the actual world in doing that the more appealing it is at least on the surface and what's ironic about that is that uh the thing that we keep coming to conclusions about on this very podcast in our murder hobo fantasy series is that the worst the worst thing about tabletop games is the fantasy setting because whenever a game gets set in the modern world, you can actually relate to it, which means that you can have real personalities in your characters. You don't have the rogue and the fighter and the rain, these incredibly generic way. You can actually be nuanced about it because it's someone that you can imagine what they actually sounded like. And it's from a period that even if you add steampunk, if you add twirly mustaches and top hats and gears to everything, we at least have some idea what that would be like. The medieval world that books like this portray, in some sense, literally never existed. And even if it did, even the parts that did exist, we we have no relation to them whatsoever. We have to imagine them in some sense. Um, but to be fair, this is all me talking as a uh, non-fantasy fiction reader. So by all means, I might be wrong about that. I feel but like I've had a lot more fun in the modern world. I feel like less familiarity with the details of day-to-day life makes suspension of disbelief easier and makes things like magic easier to accept and also probably easier to integrate as an author. Um, yes. Uh, no question. Yeah. Cause, cause you're not, you're not being like, well, I mean, we have a, we have a appliance that does that. Why do we need magic? Which is the problem with the Harry Potter universe frequently. Um, Guns. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> what do wiz- what are, what do wizards sticks. do about firearms? I feel like that's actually never addressed at any point in any of those books. Yep. No, well, no. That, entire, that entire series should have just been that one scene from Indiana Jones where the guy comes out <laughs> with a sword and then Andy shoots him dead. <laughs> Look, in my head, all of Harry Potter is that scene from Indiana Jones. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I know they're doing it for fun, but... Come on, guys. Well, the, I think yeah. that that suspension, the separation of what is potentially a real life for us, the, the, an, an environment we can really and truly imagine ourselves in, like the current moment. Sure. We lose that when we go into science fiction, too, because if you're going into space or to an alternate world, right. it may be science fiction and based on science for the most part, but there's still that element of fantasy that creation of an environment that's not familiar in any way. And what's really hard about that, I think, is when you have one perspective as a human person, and I know there are many different types of humans, but when you're trying to translate that to 
a different culture and imagine how that culture would, how people in that culture would react in circumstances that we can pretty much predict how humans would react in. How do you do that in a realistic way that is believable and makes that culture truly different from our own? And one of the best books I ever read um, in science fiction or fantasy, and I still don't know which one of them it is, is a book called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. And she did a better job of that, I thought, than anyone. She created a a culture that at first glance, the visitors, the intruding humans, thought they understood because it seemed to function on a similar level. The rules. Yeah, by our rules to a degree. It turned out that wasn't the case at all. And they made some rather drastic errors that caused some huge upheaval in this book. And you you never see it coming because you don't see things from the perspective of the because the intuition's wrong. Right. Your intuition is completely wrong and you can't predict it. And and it's really hard to do that. And I think one of the things that I struggle with in fantasy and the reason so much of it often feels derivative is because the authors sometimes don't seem like they try to do that. They don't try to take themselves out of their perspective for now or for Oh, there's there's a terrible and, yeah, plague and, of that. Yeah, and uh-huh. and try to see it from the perspective. So anything that you run into in many fantasy novels reacts just like the guy next door. You know, it's 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 a believable character because you know them, not because they're mm-hmm. really different and unique. Yeah, that yeah, was you see you see uh you see so many like twenty first century values imposed on people from previous, you know, uh previous societies. It's like, you know, they they treat women very equally in this medieval society when in reality probably all of the men would have treated the women like shit yeah well and, and this this i know andy and i have I, I don't know if this was the specific point of the disagreement but i think one of the most salient salient popular examples of this was game of thrones where for the first several seasons of the tv show they actually did a admirable job making it feel like the world took place back then and as the writing staff got pared down, it started to feel a little more like the drama of the modern day um, when you start having trials over homosexuality, that kind of thing starts happening. But the um, it, it it's it, you have to draw a line somehow because you have to, like you said, you want, you want relatable characters, but you also want believable characters. And I think, to a large extent, I think fantasy compromises that at least for me i mean i'm a i'm a really tough sell on character arcs like i have a hard i have a hard time liking (laughs) liking particular characters and things it's i like star wars four better than five because five tries to be too ambitious i like the simplicity of the hero arc of four more than I like the ambitiousness of five. And I know that's a thoroughly controversial opinion that we don't have time to get into. Not Where's a, the best one? I mean, we could, we could fight it's, about it's it. It's not as bad <laughs> as like, like physically six fight more than it. five or <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Or you could have picked one of the original, the new trilogy. That would have been <laughs> un truly contentious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That would have been, that would have been a tough sell. Four and but five no, are the best ones. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No. No. We can back. We can back away from that slowly. Right. <laughs> so. So. So back to the character question because we just talked about how hard it is to create a believable character that has a different perspective than ours. 
Did you find any characters in the book that you liked, David? Oh, sure. No, I like, actually which, liked I liked a handful of them once I once I and we'll just we'll open this can of worms now. Once I got over Robin's obsession with similes. <laughs> um, I never noticed which per- that. Which, I don't either. See, that's that's incredible to me <laughs> that you guys didn't see that. Like I as as someone who writes what I would consider in my more flighty, arrogant hours prosatry like 20 minute screeds that I, I comb over and make sure all the words are right. The number of times as if shows up in both the prose and the dialogue in this book was driving me insane. Hmm. She, you act as if that's a big deal. She, she didn't, <laughs> she doesn't use metaphors. She doesn't give us the leeway to just say that the tree is this or that the person is this. She has to go, the tree behaved as if. And it's like, I know it's not literally doing this. <laughs> I understand that. Just tell me. <laughs> it's just infuriating. Um, yeah. But I actually, by about chapter seven or eight, so a couple of agonizing hundred pages, <laughs> I did I did manage to get over that. And no, the, the characterization the characterization in a lot of the book is very good. And actually, I think the book makes very good use of first person early on. There's some of the most, um, some of my, like, first person is usually a little harder to read for me than, than you know, the third person omniscient or, but mm-hmm. the fifth and the... It's way harder to write. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, they, they, I, I remember reading the books for the first time and being a little thrown immediately and then getting used to it very quickly um, mm-hmm. and not minding at all. And really, they become some of my favorite uh, examples of fiction written in the first person because I don't know, I'm trying to think of other notable books and it's hard to come up with a good, uh, it's hard to remember any right now. Third person is very safe. Right. Third person lets yeah. you actually say list out the facts. And this is this is something that also um it's it's harder to appreciate on the first go around, which uh we, we get into the contentious topic of rereading books, which I do all the time because as someone who is only interested in books for their arc and their prose, starting the book back over and going through it is a total non issue for me. If it was good the first time, it'll be good the second time. No, I don't think there's a lot of what a waste. I don't think there's a lot of people here that well, I mean Andy might disagree, but I there are there are Not several really. books that I read just regularly because of how much I like I've them. read um, I've read Name of the Wind five times. I've only read Which it one? Name of the Wind. I, oh. I think I've read it three, but I haven't read it. I've been thinking about rereading it, but I've it's like if I can still remember a lot of the details of the book, I'm not ready to reread it yet. Unless it's mm-hmm. Dune, which has a, so many details that I get them I get different ones every time I read it. So um, that some some books I love so much that I start over again instantly. Like, I finish reading it, and then I start reading it again instantly. There's not very many books I do that with. One of them was 112263 by Stephen King, which surprises me now when I look back on it. But, but it, was, it was mesmerizing at the time, and it was, a, it was one of his best books. I still think it's one of his best books. But another one that I did that with was uh, Old Man's War by John Scott. Oh, yeah. That's a great yeah, book. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and so I actually reread that series on the, tr- the, the plane back from uh from europe recently did people look and... at you funny when you laughed out loud <laughs> <laughs> no they didn't um they knew better. I, that honestly i i had very very high opinions of that series when i first read it and it's kind of worn off on me a little bit uh 
worn off a little bit as I've reread it now maybe three times, I think. Uh, I can't put my... I, I would have to think a little bit longer about why I don't like it quite as much as I, I did the first time. I mean, you, you come at the book, those books, um, not trying not to get too off topic, but the, their gimmick is that the, at the very beginning, you have this weird thing that happens where old people become young again, and there's that, there's an interesting, you know, but, but after that, they start, they, they're not, they're not, they're great books, but they are mm -hmm. in a genre that's been done, um, like, like, the, like the Forever is. War. Uh, to yep. me, the Forever War is the proto like, and people will say people will say uh, Heinlein's Starship Troopers is Starship Troopers, but nah, the Forever War well, is Forever the War. is the proto like space armor book, yeah. like yep. Forever War. Is, I mean, Forever War was was actually kind of a critical response to Starship Troopers in a way because the message of the Forever War is that war is not actually that great. Yeah, well, and and Starship Troopers is a. It's two thirds a vehicle Absolutely for Heinlein's opposite. opinions on fascism, like, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's when you read when I reread Starship Troopers after having read it probably twenty five or thirty years before, it was so clearly political to me. The mm -hmm. second time I read it, that mm -hmm. things I didn't notice the first time because yeah. I was living in the era where those ideas were prevalent. You guys haven't had that experience, um, but I did grow Not up yet, in that. Early seventies, uh, yes. Hopefully, you won't knock on wood. But um, yeah. but that that whole mentality with the Cold War and uh, that was that was the norm. I grew up in elementary school hiding under tables on a regular basis because we would have drills, you know, to hide from the Russians that were going to bomb us. Um, All so, reasonable yeah, fears. Yeah. So so those that that book when I first read it as a teenager struck me in a completely different way. I read it later and I thought, oh, I hate this book. I don't like it at all. I did not yeah. like Starship Troopers again. I remember reading when it I being like, it. this is okay. Yeah. I, it, oh, see, you should try reading books the way I do because, I mean, I, I fell in love with Catch-22 the first time I read it when I was 13, and I kind of understand more about the cynicism melded together with the horror now just because I have more to work with. But it's still so beautifully written that I, I can go back to it and it's – just great to read. I mean, you can flip to any, and Catch-22, I, I keep harping on it because it's the one I read recently, but it's, and we, we have a podcast if you want to hear the movie crew gush about it, but it's, the book from front to back is nothing but bureaucratic bullshit intermixed with the horrors of war. You can flip to any page in the book. It's not in chronological order. In fact, someone tried to put it in chronological order and it can't be done. Uh, the book has anachronisms that straight up don't fit together. But the whole thing, it's just one continuous recurring nightmare. And if that's something you're into, with laughs, um, it just you, you can open it to any page. And it's full of amazing stuff. And that's just, which again, that, that rules out a lot of books because it's just, it's, it's probably really, really hard to write a book like that. Yeah. I imagine there's only a finite number of people who can do it. Um, and many I, of them never reproduce a masterpiece no, after their... No, Heller made one good book. Yeah, yeah well, um, what, what, To Kill a Mockingbird, the second book came out, and everybody's like, oh, um. Yeah, but, <laughs> but there, there's some evidence that second book was never intended to have been published. And yeah, yeah. Were, that was a whole other story, but... Um, 
So, which characters did you like, though? Back to back to this oh, book. Oh, yeah. Not to keep dodging your question. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Who I really liked Galen because there was a strong chance Galen could have been just an awful one-dimensional character and was not. Right. Uh, Galen yeah. could have simply been. Um, I mean, he was like 1.5 dimensional at best. No, that's, but that's. <laughs> I disagree with you, Dave. I'm no, sorry. no, 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 that's fine. No, no, no. He wasn't like this massive three dimensional character, but he, he was set up to be. Just actually, a bad guy. Actually, no, I guess I concede your point in an, in an awkward other way. He's not actually three dimensional. He's a bitter guy, but it's just like bitter with flavor. So they didn't attempt, they didn't. They didn't pull the arc, they... She didn't pull the arc on that character out to make Galen have, like, real feelings. Mm-hmm. Galen is a bitter dude. Yep. And it plays within a really specific restrained space that actually made that character much more enjoyable to me than I thought. Because there was every sign that Galen would turn around and be all right. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, and he wasn't, and that's hugely preferable Mm-hmm. Um, that's same with Regal. Same with Regal. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't. Spoilers. Uh, Dave but. didn't get to the <laughs> Sorry. next books. That's no Regal's. A, Regal's a jerk in the first book. Yeah. He continues. To be but there's every sign. There's every <laughs> sign that he's not going to be a jerk later. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, don't I never got that impression. <laughs> yeah, I never believed Regal was anything except a jerk from from his first really? meeting. Yeah, he's with, a bully at the very he's, beginning of the of the book. Um, he's yeah. But he's too much of a jerk. Like, he's just such a douche. You thought he was a snake? You can't that you can't imagine that they're not going to do something we you know, that she isn't going to like somehow uh you know, make him into a good character. Like you know, sort of like what happened with Galen. It's like uh you know, he's a he's a jerk, but uh it turns out that there's a reason for him being a jerk. Yeah, well, and that's that's why I like Galen so much. Galen has every reason to be, uh, in addition to his narcissism, he's got plenty of background reasons to be who he is, and he mm-hmm. has no interest in overcoming them, <laughs> which is great. That's uh, that's Nicole. Uh, Nicole will cite Bad Santa as being one of the best Christmas movies of all time, and <laughs> and her favorite thing about it. This is actually a general a general Paddock consensus on that is that Billy Bob Thornton, the main character. The simple fact that that character makes no move forward makes that movie beautiful <laughs> because they could have made it a realization of Christmas joy or like him fighting through his problems, but no, there's none of that. And that that, res- that level of artistic restraint on the movie's part, we find uh, in our family, in our we also think life aquatics an amazing movie so we're our family's particular but that movie's divisive that movie is almost exactly a 50 on um most yeah life aquatic is a, really? t- is a tough sell for a lot of people really yeah. oh yeah just talk to hub they don't huh. like they don't like assholes as protagonists i don't either <laughs> so i probably wouldn't like it uh it's so endearing are, are you I, a fan of wes anderson in any way no Oh, oh! <laughs> talk so about actually, Lori, talk about rereading. There's yeah, yeah, yeah no kidding. Yeah. I, I could easily. Um, so Lori, I have a question for you. Did you like the fits? Um, not in the first book, actually, and and when I read it, and I hadn't read any of the sequels. Mm-hmm. My first 
I was really disappointed that he trained really to be an assassin. I was hoping that the book title was a red a herring of some kind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that he really wasn't going to be an assassin. And when he really, when he went out on his first job, I was terribly disappointed in him. Um, like no, yeah, he, he, just he failed. Did it. He failed to live up to my expectations. <laughs> 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 so no child of mine would have done that. But yeah. um, <laughs> little do you know, I, I did. Ben goes out at night. Oh no. I know some of the things some of my kids have done and they're a little bit scary, but uh, <laughs> not you, Ben. Film cameras. <laughs> but, uh. yeah, I didn't initially love Fitz. And I grew to love him over the next two books in the series. I didn't dislike him in the first book. I just, I wasn't convinced he was going to really redeem himself as far as having his own personality and knowing what he wanted to do and not just being a follower, you know, having a mm-hmm. having an arc where he became a leader in his own life instead of letting other people dictate his circumstances and direction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was the whole point of calling him boy. <laughs> was that- <laughs> well, well, and Fitz, of course, Fitz is the term for a bastard child. So if you were in sure. England or uh, France and you were called Fitz something, it, that's the same thing as saying bastard of John yep. or bastard of whoever. So, I mean, his he was, they, he was steeped in that as his role in life. He was not just the bastard, but the bastard that his showing up caused the kingdom to have a great loss. Yeah. And yeah. And, and many people held him responsible for it, even though of course it wasn't his fault at all. So I don't know for a lot of the first book fits seems to me like he's done to more than he does. Well, and Mm -hmm. his name would suggest that. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you on that one. He, um, yeah, I, I kind of like, I kind of hated him at first. I will, so I, I didn't, I do, I, I continue to not like him very much, even after all three books. But I didn't like the book itself because of how unlikable of a character he was. And then I realized that that was actually intentional. It, it just, for whatever reason, it took me a while to realize that fit, you're not, like you're not really supposed to admire Fitz in any way. Yeah. Um, he's very flawed. He, he's very flawed, deeply yeah. flawed as a person. And I think that's actually like his his uh, you know kind of childish nature, mm-hmm. even persisting into his into his uh, more you know teenage and adult years, um, was actually something that was really well written. I found like he he kind of threw some tantrums sometimes, and it was like yeah. Big wow. big ones, this, especially yeah. in the second and third book. Um, yeah. Things get real. Yep. <laughs> so, but, um, um, but he's also, but he's also had some, like, he's also had such a, such a crappy life in general. Right. Yeah. It's hard um, to, it's hard to you know, say. It's hard to differentiate between, like, where does his choice to be this person begin and where does what has been done to him end? It's really hard to say. And I felt like that was very well handled. Mm-hmm. I did too. Yeah. What did you think of the fool? I liked the fool. The fool's a great character. The fool is just the great. fool. The fool's relevance ex- is not as big in the first book, so uh, right. Dave's probably yeah, he, not. The, the, I mean, you the, you see you meet is, his character, but the fool is also an adolescent in the first book. Right. He's not, or she. Did anybody figure out what gender the fool is? 
I think the fool said in the third book that it does not care what gender it is. All right, that's some 21st century bullshit. Anyway, they, um, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that no, that, I see where you're going with that. However... No, that was it. I'm not going anywhere. The, that was the, the end story, of it. The story <laughs> arc arrived. actually supports the fool's lack of gender identity. Eventually, it, there's a yes. story behind it. it and it's okay. an important there story. There is a reason. There there is a, a it's reason. actually a very significant reason. No, I was I was just going to say, the fool, the fool in its... If the fool becomes a better character in the second and third books, I can see where it happens, and there's some cool stuff to be done with it. Because like most books that handle magic, the way that I rather they'd handle magic, uh, the magic's invisible in this universe. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you you could if you were given preparatory time, you could pretend to have all of the magic in this series. Correct. Like you could just you could fake being any of these things. Like you have to essentially believe the people who have the magic that they're doing magic. Yep. Um it's true. Yeah. Which which is a with, fun, subtle way to do it. With the exception of the uh the ability of witted people to repel. I think that's the only physical mark like the only the only physical act. Well, but even the uh, way that that's manifested, maybe in the later books it becomes more powerful. The way that Fitz uses it in the first book is people are just basically like stumbling over, and occasionally the uh, the people around him, like when Galen's hammering on him, the people around him can't even tell he's using it. It's so subtle. Right. That's true. Like it, maybe it becomes different. In there the are later more. Books. There are more egregious examples of it later. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah the the. Sorry, go ahead. The first well, I just want to go, is... go back a minute, Dave, because you said that that fool's gender identity is very 21st century, but remember these books were written in 1995. And <gasps> at that time, <laughs> this was not a, a really common conversational thread anywhere, pretty much, unless you went to a club. I, I, I was... I was... That was tongue-in-cheek. But the, uh, the, the thing I was trying to get to... <laughs> the thing I was trying to get to with the fool is that the... Um, the character is set up in such a way that um, it has essentially this this premonitory sense and speaks in riddles, and everyone just seems to basically be at peace with the fact that that's how the fool behaves, that the fool is this augur. And I like the idea of that just being a presence that no one can really, like, take advantage of. Like, they know... in. They're just annoyed. I, I, I This didn't manifest in the first book, but I could just... The way that I would have written this um, would be that everyone's annoyed that the fool... Like, they can go back and they can check what he said and... It, oh, God damn, we could have totally seen this coming because what he said was totally true. And we just couldn't interpret it correctly. So you get, like, a group of scholars together, like five people whose job it is to figure out what the hell he's saying... Like this would be the bureaucratic nightmare that this magic would turn into. You're, this is you're, very Douglas what Adams. What you're talking about right now is is uh, not far from the reality of what ends up, what you end up learning later in the books, and especially the second, okay. That's the second. Trilogy, that's promising. Um, is they you, you start to learn more about the fool's history because the fool ends up being a very pivotal character throughout the entire arc, um, and you you learn you, you, you just just I'll I'll say that what you're what you would do is not far from what Robin Hobb did. Um, okay, that's that's promising. Yeah, and actually, the of the of the five trilogies, the fifth one still being written, only 
The first one and the one that's being written now are from Fitz's perspective. The others are from the perspective of other characters. Um, so there's there's the Tawny Man, which is from the Fool's perspective. So there's three books in that one. And then there's two others that are from characters in a completely different culture in the same world that have some overlap in places with the yeah, and they're not, six touchies, do, but they're, they're not, not the same. either. Yeah. Do those trilogies take place during the same events? Like the same uh, time they period say it, as these? They're not there's overlap. They're not necessarily exactly the same time period, but um, mm -hmm. they are uh, very much the same era. I yeah. some. Is there one where there's a character that doesn't appear anywhere else that just happens to be in the background of all the major events? Uh, Forrest Gump style? I mean, I the, the so. fool is in almost everything. Yeah, the uh, fool is, if not present in every story, referenced to some level. Yeah, well, I mean the life, so, the life ship traders, the fool is there, uh, the yeah. whole time, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Really quick, before we move on from the fool, did the fool remind either of you of um, what was that character in Brandon Sanderson's universe, specifically in The Way of Kings and Words of Radiance? that, like, uh, sort of hopped from universe to universe and, like, shows up in a number of his other books. Uh, I can't remember the name of the character. Uh, this sounds like a TV trope. but Yeah, I don't remember it either. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Maybe I missed, he, missed Hoyt, that. Hoyt. Hoyt oh, was Hoyt. the name. Uh, hmm. Don't remember it? Ah, that's got a review. It is, no, it, now it, I'm going to have to tickled. go back and look for Hoyt. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> tickled my memory. I'm going to look it up right now. I think it was Hoyt. Maybe I'm wrong. No, it could be right. Hoyt sounds... Uh, I just Googled Hoyt Sanderson. That was not what I wanted. Um, <laughs> did, that, did that work? No, that's, that's a, uh, the name of several people. Uh, that's We're not going to go down to Google right now. That's a waste of time. So um, what's good yeah, about probably. Hoyt, Andy? Uh, it was just a very similar character. I felt like Brandon Sanderson might have taken some inspiration from The Fool. Potentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. How old is Robin Hobb? Mm. She was born in 1952. Okay. So she's 64. She would have been, the book was written in 95, so she would have been in her mid-40s when she wrote it. Okay. She also writes as Megan Lindholm. I can't stand Megan Lindholm's books. <laughs> they feature cats to a very... High degree. Interesting. Fan fantasy novels with cat protagonists are not my thing. Oh, cat protagonists. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's as opposed that's, to uh, okay. I was not aware that she did those books. That's wild yeah, to and, me. Mm -hmm. Is that her real name? Her real name is Margaret. Okay, it's a different something. Lindholm something. Okay, and she goes by Megan Lindholm for one series of fantasy novels that are more contemporary. And then Robin Hobb does the the more medieval Assassin's Apprentice series books. Right. The cool books with the stabbing and the poisoning yep. and that stuff. There's lots of creative deaths in the books. That's true. <laughs> it's quite a Galen's. Bit. Wait. Does Galen die by the end of the first book? Um, he's a shell. I think so. No, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't die. Doesn't he get forged? He's he gets forged. skill death. 
whatever. Yeah. yeah. Forged, it, they call is, it, when I, they strip their... No, he was person. not forged. Oh, he wasn't. He was, he, was, uh, he was sucked dry by Verity when, when yes. Verity tried, tried to, he tried to kill Verity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. With the help of Fitz. Yep. Who was During the in a hot tub. anime final sequence when Fitz was falling I mean, he was into in the abyss and he... Yeah. F- and he flashed through the brains of all of the characters in a montage to end the fight. There was a very, if, I don't know who you'd have to get to direct it, but there was there was a very psychedelic, manic way that you could have addressed the ver- that scene of him falling into that spa that's just like a headache-inducing amount of colors and zooming between people's brains. Like, the way that was written seemed very manic. Mm. I don't know if that came across from the I, else, so. She was she was a child of the sixties. There could have been some contribution of LSD. Oh, in okay. that I'd have to go back and, and read it again. That's the thing, I don't retain like the details of the book or I I've been fairly quiet this whole time because I, I you know, I don't remember the details of the prose, you know, more than a few pages after I read it, with the exception of a few standout books, and the story starts to get fuzzy after a couple weeks. Is why rereads have such a so valuable because you know mm. the book only starts to seem familiar again once you read it. Um, well, I mean, you'll notice no po- no quotes are being pulled here. No, so. no. I mean, there's not a lot of the only book I can really quote is Dune, but there's so many quotable things in Dune. Um, and I think I actually had. I mean, there's oh, there's no, there's there's there. elements of Dune that have made it into popular culture. There's, there's a, a, there was a song I was listening to recently that has Dune in the... Oh, um, you guys remember that song where the music video was Christopher Walken dancing through a mall? How what? could we forget? Oh, apparently no one else heard <laughs> oh, okay. this. Okay, right. well, look it up. It's called <laughs> Weapon of Choice. But the song has, has Dune... Uh, Dune references in the in the lyrics, which I didn't realize until very mm. recently. There are two songs that have references to Assassin's Apprentice in it. I didn't realize that really? until I read the footnotes on Wikipedia. Uh oh. Yeah. Which songs? I couldn't. Which songs? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, <laughs> but I, but it there are they're listed in the footnotes on Wik, the wiki for um, Assassin's Apprentice. Huh. It's no Led Zeppelin, Lord of the Rings, but uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. I'm not much of a person to quote from books ever, partly because I don't remember the prose like Ben was saying, because I read so many books. That How many books do you, you sh- read on average in a month, Mom, for the I listeners? I don't know. It depends, it depends on the month. Um, like, I didn't read much in August. I only read six, which oh, okay. is not very many. Um, <coughs> What's your high yourself. for a month? 25? Okay. Yeah. Probably. Were they were they short? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I I tend to get on a roll. But anyway, what was I? Why would you interrupted me, Ben? What was I going to say? Um, <laughs> ben, songs, I wasn't talking about songs. Oh, oh, how I forget! I forget oh, yeah. the prose, like you were saying, and usually within a couple of months, details of the story kind of disappear, except for those few rare exceptional books like The Name of the Wind, which, mm. you know, you always can remember the details of right. truly memorable stories. But a lot of things, I forget the little things, and so when you read it again, if it's good enough to read again, 
it's fresh. It's new. Right. Except with the exception of what Andy was saying about books like Old Man's War. And I think one of the reasons it's so good the first time you read it is because of all the ways it surprises you. Mm-hmm. And once you've experienced those surprises, it's like opening a Christmas yeah. package the, the second of the time. Are, are gone. Yeah. yeah, you already know what's in there. The surprise is gone. It's like, oh, yeah, I mm-hmm. still like this. But it's not the same kind of thrill as yeah. when you first unwrapped it and had no idea what was inside. So I feel like I've been anesthetized to that over time. I just I'm not I'm not attracted to media like that anymore. Nothing surprises you? It's not that nothing surprises me, it's that I'm just not attracted to media that is that revolves around that. Mm. It's surprise driven. Yeah, I don't like I don't watch a lot of TV shows. I mean if there's Breaking Bad sort of fell into that category, but I mean if Breaking Bad didn't have better characterization, I would have absolutely stopped watching it. Because the the what happens the what's about to happen, what's going to happen next, thing, like that does that hook doesn't work for me. And a lot of that just has to do with the way that I think about the stuff probably. I mean, when I read this book, Ben, you said you managed to read like the whole trilogy in a week and a half or something. Yeah, no, that's pretty typical for that kind of book. Um, yeah, that was uh, over Christmas break probably last year. Yeah, this book took me more than a month to read because I read it one chapter at a time. The concept of a page turner doesn't really exist for you? Um, It does, but it's almost always a book that I've already read before. Mm. So I already know that it's worth turning the page. <laughs> well, and I don't, and I don't have to chew it as much. Like when I'm reading through stuff like this, I I have to sit and process everything. I don't. I I can't just read through the thing. Really. That's interesting. I prefer very much to process in retrospect. Like, I, I really like to be engrossed by books. It, kind of the same yeah. way as you do, Lori. Mm-hmm. I really like to be engrossed by books, and that does mean not thinking about them that much when I'm reading them. So a lot of my processing happens in retrospect. I got to a point in Assassin's Apprentice near the end when they finally get into wherever the steps... I don't remember the name of the place they're at when they're when they're doing the, the faux marriage, but the... um. There was a point where I actually managed to turn the page, go to the next chapter, and go, okay, let's keep going. That happened twice <laughs> out of 24 chapters in the book. I just can't. I, When I lose myself in a book, it is for a completely different reason. It is for, again, it's for the words. Right. Well, you know, when I, when I say surprise, I don't necessarily mean that the book has to have a things that shock or, yeah. or amaze or, or twist. What I mean is when you read a book that presents ideas that, you hadn't seen before. So for me, something, a book is a surprise to me when it gives me an idea in fiction that I haven't run across in another book before, right. presented in the same way. Yeah. Because because so much is repeated True. in fiction. And you think something's truly original, but so many ideas are just done over and over and over again with different character mm-hmm. names in different settings. Look, it's even more depressing in nonfiction. It happens there yes. too. Yes. <laughs> I want to make, I, I actually have considered compiling an ebook of some kind that is just a bullet point list of all the facts you should know going into any nonfiction book because odds are good they're going to reference them. Mm-hmm. Like you could probably, there are probably 500 facts that every nonfiction author thinks you would be surprised to learn between case studies and like specific tricks of words and like there's there's just this set there's a brick of these things and someone should totally boil those down and make a billion dollars 
I didn't mean to derail you that far. No, no, it just made me think of a nonfiction book. I was trying to think earlier when we were talking about books that left an impression on you that nothing nonfiction came to my mind <laughs> when we were having that conversation, even though there have been many nonfiction books that have been really powerful that I still really think about. Um, so I, I, one of them came to mind when you were talking about oh, that. Okay. So just writing it down. Do tell. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Oh, yeah, that's the book about the woman whose cells are still being used for cultures. Yeah, they, like, don't die. Yes. So just a brief side note. If you like nonfiction or you like things that are written about science, it's a fascinating book, but it's fascinating because of the moral implications in the story as well. But basically, Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman who died of cervical cancer in the 50s, I think. Wasn't it the 50s, Ben? I haven't read it. I don't don't know. It was like the early 50s. And without her consent or her family's knowledge or consent. Naturally. The physicians taking care of her cultured cells from her cancer and grew them in a lab. And they turned out to be, at that point, point in time the only cell line of human cells that could continuously be expected to replicate and would not die and so hela is what they were called h e l a henrietta lax it was h e for henrietta l a for lax hela sure. cells are still used in scientific study now it's been 50 or 60 years since she died but her, her family never gave permission, didn't even know about it for many, many years until someone brought it to their attention. They never made a dime off of it. Uh, nobody well, of ever not. did. Uh, the, yeah. it, they were just basically taken from her. But but the story is is really fascinating because it goes deeply into the, how science uses humans to its own advantage without appropriate informed consent. And that still happens now. I have a degree in psychology. Yeah. I'm intimately familiar with this practice. Yes, yes. So anyway, that, that it's, a, it's a fascinating book. It's really, really good. Um, I highly recommend it if you're interested in science. But, but is it beautifully written? I thought it was because – now, this is me. For me, nonfiction has to tell a compelling story. So I don't want to read a newspaper article in book form. You know, I don't want it to right. be – just the facts for 350 pages with 50 pages of footnotes. You know, I, I want the author to develop a story around it that is itself compelling and ties it all together so that you can absorb the science in it without feeling like you're just lost in facts and figures. Sure. It does an incredibly good job of that. Um, but but how does it do that? Does it does it pull it historically? Does it bring personalities into it? It does all of that. It, okay. it talks about modern science. It talks about history. It talks about culture. It talks about racism, and it talks about things like informed consent and who owns your cells and your DNA. Yeah. You know, Bill Clinton. All of those. Bill Clinton. Well. Anyway. Anyway, so so yeah, it, it, it does a really good job of that, I thought. So right now I'm reading Hamilton because I bought the soundtrack oh, and okay. got addicted to it. And I thought I should read the book that it was based on so that I actually knew what was in that book. But I haven't gotten very far in it because I got distracted by too many fiction books. I didn't know it was based on a book. Yeah, That's I don't. It's kind of weird. I basically don't read nonfiction. 
Well, you, same. Yeah, my you life, live in my nonfiction. Life is nonfiction. <laughs> Andy is in yeah. the same boat. My, my job is nonfiction. Yeah, that's what, what is your job, I get, Andy? I get plenty of that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a graduate student in physics. In physics, okay, yeah. You're He's a laser scientist. He does space lasers. Sort of. Cool. I mean, I live in real life, too. I just want to know more about it. Actually, to be fair, I don't, I don't actually read all that many nonfiction novels, per se. I just I listen to... 20 to 25 podcasts a week. That's a lot. Um, That's a lot of podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> but they're the way that I get it. And I actually, I listen to a ton of novelists so that they actually tell me the part I want to hear about because I don't want to hear about the sappy human drama version of whatever they're talking about. I want them to be grilled by someone who wants to know the information. <laughs> um, so... That's generally the way that I do it. So I get it in two to three hour chunks instead of having to read a book, which I've already admitted I'm pretty bad at. Uh, to round on this tangent before it gets uh, too insane, but to prolong it anyway, have you read any uh, David Foster Wallace? It's ridiculous. Okay, I'll read that book. I have to stop talking about him, though. Um, so <laughs> Let's talking, move on. Yes. I'll probably edit part of that out. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> Assassin's Apprentice, we've covered the protagonist, we've covered some cool characters. What else do we want to talk about with this book, or books in general, that's so hip and happening these days? Hmm. Sagas versus standalone, that's what I put down on my list. Okay. Because it seems like there's really a difference between a standalone novel and a book that's intended to be part of a series, and sometimes it's artificially imposed by the publisher. So a good example is The Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien intended to be one book. He had never But he is crazy. <laughs> he never in, he never intended for that to be split into three separate stories like they had separate story arcs. It was supposed to be continuous. And and then there are standalone books where there's just one book and it tells the story all by itself and it's not linked to anything else and those are much more difficult to find. Is a book mm, that's agreed. just Creates its own universe, has its own story built in, and it tells it, and it's finished, and you get to the end of it, and you go, wow, that was pretty cool. So I was kind of interested in that and wondering why. It seemed like 20 years ago, there were many books that were standalone, and it seems that more and more, everything's a series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have a, I have a thought on this, which is maybe that there, it, it seems to me that... Um, that that niche has almost been consumed by short stories, the the sort of standalone universe thing. So I've I've read uh, a fair number of short stories in the past couple of years, and a lot of them are just standalone little um, little ideas that the author had, but didn't want to make into a full book for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, Courtesy so like, to uh, his readers. So like I've read uh, some short stories by Paolo Bacigalupi. Um, who wrote the Wind Up Girl, which was very good. That was good. That was a, a full, that was a full novel, and that was I think a standalone actually. There is so this a, is kind of a, there <laughs> is a sequel to it now. There but is I, okay. Yeah, uh, but I think it was an originally you could read it as a, a solo. Ruined. Yeah, it. It, it very much seemed like a stand. So that's maybe a counterpoint to what I'm saying. But uh, John Varley also has a lot of great short stories that are very much standalones. Um, but it seems like almost everything else that I read is something that's part of a series, whether it's yeah. whether it's a true saga or whether it's like the culture books that are just written in the same universe but mm -hmm. aren't necessarily. I feel like uh, it like 
it requires more constraint as, or more restraint as an author mm. to mm -hmm. fit your idea. I mean, because it seems like so many authors have these, especially in the fantasy genre. Um, the fantasy is the worst offender for this, I think. Um, they have <laughs> these, these sprawling, <laughs> sprawling visions, and they it's almost like they start writing the series before they've decided what they're going to do at the end. Um, and like I know Robert Jordan's books are this way. I've never read any of them. Um, Terry, Don't bother. Terry Goodkind uh, was that the um, mm -hmm. the Stone of Shannara? No, no, or no, that's uh, that's uh, 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 Stone of Tears or no? Yep. Yeah. The War. The Seeker. That was is, the. Uh, that was Terry Goodkind. The Stone of Farewell. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Was Terry Goodkind wrote the the other one? It might not be Goodkind. Stone of Farewell. Tad Williams. Tad Williams. Tad Williams. There we go. Yeah. No, those were good. That's a really good trilogy. Um, but but Terry Goodkind wrote, uh, yeah, another sprawling fantasy series that ended up being like twelve or fourteen books long. Um, and I gave up at I hit book five, and I, I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Right. Be because there was nothing new in it after that. It was just rehashing of the same battles with the same. It, it just they they would throw a different character in, but the. There wasn't anything new to learn. I, 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 have, I had a problem in one of the only back when I actually read these kinds of books. Uh, Terry Pratchett ran into that after a while. Oh, yeah. The first oh, the yeah. first dozen books were great, but he started to recycle mechanics. <laughs> yeah, I quit. I quit right around book fourteen. Yeah, I have I have all the books up till fourteen, and then I was like, you know what? I'm tired of this. The it's a good run. The Master <laughs> and Commander series is like that. Um, but you love that. I do. They're great. Uh, I mean, it takes them a long time to get into that uh, that arc, that rut. And also, um, there is an arc the whole time because the characters are aging. Like, there's a few years in between each book, and so it follows these two characters through the course of their entire lives, effectively. And um, the long story arc has to do with mostly uh, their personal relationships while the, the books themselves are you know, sea battles and sailing jargon. Um, but I like... They're ooze, oozing testosterone, those novels. <laughs> they they kind of are, yeah. Seeps right out of the pages. I love the, the lingo, though. How many women are in the series? Oh, not many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, there's, there's... On the boats, typically none, you know, which is correct, Naturally. period, period-wise. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, 95% of the series takes place on a boat um, of some type. <laughs> there's there's the, the two main characters both eventually get married. The, the captain does fairly early on, uh, book three or four. And his wife is, you know, in and out of the story. Um, the, the, the third or fourth book, or the fifth book, somewhere in there, there's a romantic tangle that takes up a good portion of the novel but um the majority of it is i would say it's like 95 percent male dialogue the whole it time. checks out yeah <laughs> well i was just i just realized i just saw this this is not uncommon in older fiction um i i it was brought to my attention that the movie lawrence of arabia doesn't have a single spoken word of female dialogue <laughs> and it's what three hours long, almost. It's almost four hours long. It's it's two hundred and twenty minutes. Um, 
that that is a catastrophic Bechdel test failure yep. right there. I was actually going to ask if Master and Commander passed the Bechdel test. Oh no, the it movie, doesn't. the movie Not doesn't. Even. I don't think. Um, no, but I mean, I can ex I can excuse that in story settings like that. It, it, that it's historical. Sailing ships yeah. were exclusively male, um, <laughs> with with rare and totally atypical exceptions. Uh, probably for women that stowed away and pretended they were men. But uh, so that I can handle. It's it's things like Lawrence of Arabia where there's really no excuse to not have women who actually know how to speak. That uh, that those are more problematic. Uh, you know, it was Hollywood <laughs> yeah. today. Sagas though, um, yeah, more restraint from the author. I feel like yeah, a lot of fantasy authors' visions they don't feel like they're compact enough to fit into one book. Um, and well, and sometimes you just wanna you wanna keep going with the characters, even right. if there's no excuse. To some degree, I had, I, I'm waiting on Patrick Rothfuss's third book in the trilogy, and reserving judgment to some extent on his if it's not a trilogy, like if he gets to the third book and then decides there's gonna be a fourth book, I'm gonna be pissed off. I mean, like if he wants to do another trilogy. That's okay, but if the first trilogy doesn't exist as a comp as a self as a standalone story, I will not be thrilled because. So on his, I was going to say on his blog, he said that he is going to be done with it with Quoth's story in the third book. Uh, he maybe thinks that there's more room for stories to be told within the Four Corners universe, but. Uh, he definitely is finishing Quoth's story. Yeah, because if he starts doing a, you know, a Robert Jordan or a uh, George R.R. R. Martin, where George R.R. R. Martin started to release books in two parts, like, that's not acceptable. Like, I'm <laughs> sorry. Like, that's two books. Like, you can't, you can't release an episode of a trilogy in two parts and call it a trilogy or a, or a series. Like, it's two books. They need different titles. Like... Yeah, it's 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 not, especially when there's such a big gap between when they come out. I feel like it's not really cool for your readers if the books don't have some amount of self-containment, even if they are um, good. Like, like books that like the middle book that just ends is the is the probably the biggest um, offender in this regard. There's so many middle books like uh, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. The middle book of that series just stops. Like, we'll pick it up when the next book comes out. There's no, hey. there's no wrapping up to speak of. It shows a lack. I, I feel like it's a lack of discipline from a storytelling I, perspective. I just left a rather scathing review for a book on Amazon last week that did that, and I was mad. I think I need to go back and adjust my review because <laughs> I, I feel a little bit bad for the author. <laughs> How many books do you review? <laughs> Not that many. Only if I have strong feelings. So I review them if I like them a lot or if I'm really mad. Yep. So That's why reviews are never helpful. <laughs> <because this is laughs> well, only... I have reviewed a few. I, I've reviewed Orson Scott Card a couple of times because as he has gotten older, his writing has become more misogynistic and um, to an extreme. Yeah. Is that possible? Oh, it is possible. And it is. <laughs> Let it, me it, show you it's how. It's extreme. <laughs> And yeah, that's so really I, disappointing. It makes it hard for yeah. me to read any of this stuff now. Um, yeah. Knowing his views as an author. just Right. Like, I mean, nah. and knowing Ender's Game was just such an incredible book. 
And then to have read his recent work, I was horrified by what is living in that man's brain. Yeah, it's like he decided he wanted to become more political and be crappy about it. I don't get <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I think he was always a pretty religious guy, but mm-hmm. he became more comfortable as he got older in expressing that religion openly. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I know lots of people that are religious that are not misogynistic or and they're ugly doing it wrong. in character. But <laughs> why else would you be religious? But, so you can get away with. Well, it. I don't know about that. I know I know people who are genuinely <laughs> genuinely faithful people. Andy is who, not. Andy is not thrilled with this line. Andy's of giving me an escape. No, no, <laughs> Andy, I'm, Andy, I'm, I'm, he's, I'm he's, arguing. I'm pretty sure he's directing it at Dave. Um. Yeah, well, probably so, but. You know, I, I think I was having this conversation the other day in the car with somebody, maybe might have been your dad, um, about how religions often selectively choose from their own books, teachings, and their own holy book teachings, and they only pick the things that reinforce their own perspective, and they leave oh, yeah. out everything else. So I think that's common across religions, and I think what Card does as he gets older and writes more books is he fixates more on the things he doesn't like and yeah. expresses that in his writing. And it, it's disappointing because he makes women come off as complete and total idiots. I mean, it's it's overbearing how bad it is in <laughs> the books. Bad. That's impressive. Yeah. They offended me. Not many books actually offend me, but I was offended by his uh, most recent books. And I tried to get all the way through the trilogy because I thought, well, maybe there's a place he's going with this. And if I just keep with it, I will figure it out and it will make sense to me in the end and I'll go, aha. Nope. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nope. Nope. But Give anyway. him all that rope and he hangs you with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think science fiction in general, in my experience, is more likely to have a standalone book. I thought you were going to say be more misogynistic. No, I no. thought you were too. <laughs> no. Wait, no, that's not true. Yeah, no, no. I, I think you're Depending right. Depending on what books you read. Yeah, mo- most, I mean, there's there's books that happen in the same universe, but more of the books are single book uh, stories. Um, right. I'm going to come they back don't leave to, you. I'm going to come back to Dune again, because it's like the prime example of, like, Dune, I don't really give a shit about the other Dune books. Like, none of them are as good as Dune. That's just... That's just denial. I don't care. It's definitely a series. <laughs> I mean, it is, but the first book stands on its own well, I think. That story I think, ends. I agree with you, Ben. I think if you read Dune and you didn't know there were all those sequels to it, well, some of them are by Frank Herbert, most of them the at this point The later ones are son. by his son, yeah. Oh, yeah, anything yeah. after the fifth book, right? Yeah. It's all, uh, all his son. Brian Herbert. Um, I think that if you just read Dune... It doesn't act in a lot of ways like he intended to write a sequel. No, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it ends. It, it acts, yeah. It feels very much like the second and third books are a, uh, a, a pair duology. What's the word for that? Uh, okay. I don't. I, I a dilogy. I, I don't know, but I, I think I agree uh, with you. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, Dune wasn't. Dune certainly wasn't written. I, I know he wasn't thinking about a sequel when he was getting the mm-hmm. first book because it took the story is that you know he went to twenty five publishing agencies and they all turned him down until one yep. of them picked it up and now it's ridiculous because you can't get a first edition copy of Dune for more than or less than eight hundred eight thousand dollars so 
Because they Jeez. it was like a slip run of six hundred because it was such a limited release because it was such a small company that picked the book up. Um, mm-hmm. So you know he wasn't thinking about a sequel at that time. Yeah. Um, but Who that, picked up a copy of it and screamed so loud that everybody found out about it? I don't I think know. it was nominated for awards. Well, it probably won think, the Hugo and the Nebula. Yeah. And that I think exposed it, it to the greater science fiction community. Well, I think I might be dropping here on the call, guys. From right. there. I, I'm trying to figure out how to solve this problem. So what publishers need to do is hire one of the Hugo Award people to review books for publishing mm. so they actually catch it. The right Hugo Award people because... Weren't there, there was a big Hugo Award boycott like two years ago for some reason. Yes. There was some kind of snafu there. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was... Uh, Scott, Scott Card so was, was a, part of that. He created a... Would You probably know, Andy. Do you want to talk about it? Uh, sure. I, so I'm, I'm not... I might be a little hazy on the details, but basically what happened was that people... Uh, like a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of uh, I, I guess they must have been conservative sci-fi authors got together and were, yeah. were pissed off about the fact that there was, like, so much liberal ideology in sci-fi <laughs> these days. <laughs> and so, so they decided to they decided to vote bomb the Hugo Awards. Yep. And so this was called the Sad Puppies incident. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, group of, uh, the group of people who were being voted in as, as conservative, you know, uh, ideologues who happened to write science fiction. Um, we're called the sad puppies. Huh. I, I, beyond that, I'm not sure the, what else happened. You, that, that, you got the gist of it. And there's still a website where you can go, and the group, the anti, the conservative sci-fi group, has its own website, and they actually plan campaigns to diminish the success of particular books or push up other books That's based bizarre. on their ideology. It, sure. It's bizarre and it's kind of scary. It's a little scary, yeah. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and Orson Scott Card is part of that group. In fact, I think he's one of the founders. And I didn't know about that when I read his book that deeply offended me a couple of years ago. And I found out about it when the big flap came up about the Hugos. And then his book, Women Are Stupid, was nominated for a Hugo and thought something was up. Um, You know... That's probably exactly what happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can I can believe that. That sounds like an A to B to C to me. But uh, that rhymed more than I wanted it to. Anyway, <laughs> gents, is there anything else we want to cover on this uh, wide ranging? Yeah, we've we've hit a lot of we've covered of a lot podcast. of ground. I don't think so. Mm. I think I've got everything I wanted to say. Yeah, same. I'm also not cognitively 100 percent today, so it's you know one of those. But I. I don't have anything left on my list that we didn't really talk about, and I wrote some new books down that I haven't read yet that I have to read. So Yeah, you burned up that legal pad. It's a win-win. I'm going to read The Politics of Dictionaries, Consider the Lobster, and I have to read the Southern Reach trilogy because Ben's been telling me that was good. And uh, Honestly, Dave, after- I kind of think you might like it. Maybe, if you like prose. It is really good prose. In fact, Dave, remember I told you sometimes I have a hard time reading books because the language is too... Too good? Too good. I can't handle it. <laughs> read the... F- <laughs> I, would, I would read... I mean, it's... it's You buy the... Honestly, you buy those three as a set, but uh, it's it's like Annihilation Something and Acceptance um, yeah. is the name of the books. 
Those are good ultimate names. And none of them are very long. Yeah, the first, honestly... Even better. The first one is the best one. The second one is a bit of a drag, and the third one's pretty good. It's Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. Um, yeah, those are pretty serious names. Yeah, but um, I, I have never been reading a section of prose and just been like... And like... Because it's it is, it is a masterpiece of descriptive language. I just remember being... Because there's not a word of dialogue, and that's when I start to notice the prose is when there's no, when there's no words and character interactions. I was just, I was, I was mildly blown away, which doesn't happen all that much anymore. Um, have you read Catch Twenty Two? I have. Has not. anyone here read Catch Twenty Two? I have read Catch Twenty Two. It's been many years okay. ago. Though. I feel like I should because <laughs> you've been rec- you've been recommending it for as uh, I mean as long as I mean I've the, known you. I mean that that's the problem is that now it's. It's too, like, I keep saying it, so now it becomes a running joke, but god damn it, that book's good. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll read yes. next. So we got that. Yeah, the only other thing that I would mention, which I was, which I just bring up out of surprise that it never came up in whatever, an hour and a half we've been talking, was uh, the last fiction, or no, it wasn't The Martian, it was uh, the Dev and Lee series, the Out of Position series by a guy named Kyle Gold, which I know I've referenced before, but it is the one novel set it's a five a five book trilogy they're popular um a five book trilogy yeah it's like douglas adams has a five book trilogy he insisted on calling <laughs> the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy set a trilogy what's the name of this five one books. of course what, of course feel feel no need to read these books this okay. this book's called out of position it is written by the most preeminent um furry romance author oh. <laughs> There now is, I have to read is, it. Which is damning with the faintest praise imaginable. With a name like out of position, I, I really it is in the it is in the ever burgeoning uh furry gay romance genre. Oh, oh I, it's ever written, burgeoning? It's written competently. <laughs> it, it is, Let's see if we can make Dave turn red. It's written good luck. <laughs> I've I've discussed this many times. No, the um, no, it's just great because it's the one it's the one book I've literally ever read where the characters were endearing in a way where I wanted the book to continue. And we were talking about sagas as opposed to individual books. Yeah. And yep. what's great about the series is that Kyle Gold clearly feels exactly the same way about his characters because the first book has a real story and an arc, and then it's over. And then if you want to, you can read the next one if you like the characters. And he comes up with something else for them to do. And then in the third book, he comes up with something else for them to do. And by the th- by about halfway through the third book, there's essentially no conflict. You're just hanging out with the characters. <laughs> and it's great. Um, like, I just... <laughs> there's no... There's literally, like... By that point, Dev is like a football player. And Lee's like this writer guy. And they make this... It, he already, Dev already has his contract. They're set for life. Nothing can actually meaningfully threaten them. They're just like going around and maybe they're they're having hard times occasionally, like miscommunications show up. But it's literally, it's like less, there's like less conflict than Seinfeld most of the time. Mm. They're just hanging out and it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> I really, it's, that's, and what's great is you guys were talking about, Ben, you were specifically talking about, um, I think you said Brandon, or uh, Patrick Rothfuss, if he announces that there will be another book, it'll like, 
compromise the integrity of the saga in question. This one just fades to black. <laughs> it's just like you can just watch them walk into the sunset for as long as you can tolerate it. It's like the exact opposite. That's how the last Master and Commander books start to be. It's like, oh, we're going to have another sea battle. We know how this goes. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I understand all the, the lingo. At the other ship. Yeah. And some of the cannonballs missed. But there was one which hit the other ship. Vast. Way not And there were sharks enough. in the water. <laughs> you forgot to mention how long it took them to, in between rounds, and like if the doors got blown off of any, you know, there's way more details that would be in there. <laughs> and then the men reloaded the cannon. Five minutes later, they fired it once more. Yeah, the tone of voice do, do they kill the main characters or do they get to retire? I don't actually know. I think I think the author died before he gave them a retirement. So he died. Yeah, the, no, the okay. last book, I think the 20th book was put together from his manuscripts after he died. Um, and I think, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but I haven't gotten that far. I never got that far. I got to like 14, I think. Oh, I thought, I thought you read the series like four times or something. I've read the first, like, I've read the first 14 once and then each time I go through it, I don't get quite as far. Um, but I usually get to at least book 12. But honestly, I only read them when I'm like really stressed out about something I can't control. And, like, just not in a good place in my head because they're very comforting books, um, you know? <laughs> like, they, they're, just, they're like, yeah. relaxing and, and distracting. Um, yeah, that's, that's what the Out of Position series is for me. Like, they just, they just roll. Mm -hmm. They're very much warm blanket books. Yep, yeah, exactly. I think we took you through Pirates of the Caribbean a few too many times when you were a little boy. I don't know when I developed that obsession with the, the... I think I really liked the movie. Um, but I think those books might be why I learned to sail. Potentially. Um, but yeah. They're good. So we... going to wrap it up? I think, I, I think that is My, that is my recording is, is two hours long, so we've been doing yeah. this for a little bit. Yep. Yeah, it's an hour 40 on this side. I think that's going to about early, cover it. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, Ben. Okay. Lori, slash Ben's mom, slash Mrs. Reeves, slash... Uh, don't call me Mrs. Reeves. Okay. See, there we go. You don't <laughs> want me to call you that. Because you're all grown up and it's too formal. See, now <laughs> were, I did find one that annoys you. When you were 12, that would be... I'm not annoyed. I just... I'm more comfortable. <laughs> oh, Okay. I'm just disappointed. Purchase. I see how it is. <laughs> yeah, don't feel bad, though, honey. It's all right. <sighs> I'll be fine. No worries. I'll do it myself. I don't mind, really. Remember that one, Ben? Yeah. The kid. <laughs> Every single time I said that, Ben would be like, no, no, I'm going to do it, Mom. I'm going to do it. And that's like, going to do it. I feel like Grandpa sells exactly the same story about you, Mom. All right, before this becomes a family feud, that's going to do it for the Machination Log. <laughs> Andy, Ben, Laurie. We don't fight. No, not really. Thanks so much for being here and discussing fiction for 
an ungodly amount of time. And nonfiction. And nonfiction. And it was fun. And thank bit. you for asking me. Oh, by all means. Indeed. I, you live down the street. If you want to talk about something, by all means, come by and do so. I do these way too often. We always have interesting conversations. You don't have to flatter me here. Good morning, everyone. That's normally my <laughs> sign off. <laughs> so.